This Marketplace podcast is supported by Invest Puerto Rico. Build the future in paradise. Puerto Rico, a hub for innovators brimming with world-class talent and a thriving entrepreneurial ecosystem. Learn more at investpr.org backslash marketplace today. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash marketplace, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash marketplace now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash marketplace. Hey, you know what we haven't heard in a while? An inflation report that starts with a two, that's what, from American public media. This is Marketplace. In Los Angeles, I'm Kai Rizdal. Friday today, 26 January. Good as always to have you along, everybody. Inflation is the macroeconomic indicator of the day. Vibe expansion is the underlying context, both of which and some other stuff we shall talk about by way of reviewing the past five days in this economy. Sidi Bredi is at Politico. Anna Swanson is at the New York Times. Hey, you two. Hey, Kai. Hey, Kai. Anna, let me start with you. Inflation, uh, the Personal Consumption Expenditures Price Index, the Fed's favorite measure, comes in this morning at 2.6% year on year. You saw it and you said what? Yeah, well, I mean, that's I said that's exactly what we want to see. I mean, it was a really remarkable week of economic data. Um, inflation is now receding, and yet we still have these very strong economic growth numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, most people had predicted a, res- a recession for 2023, and, um, you know, so much so that a lot of Americans ended up wrongly assuming that a recession was actually occurring, but that never happened. And now, um, you know, we have the the two before the inflation number as well. Um, I think, you know, it's all kind of a reminder that this economic period that we got have gone through is was pretty unusual from mm-hmm. a historical perspective. The recession was unusual, and this recovery is kind of unusual too. And it's it's just really, um, you know, confounding people's expectations of, of what might have occurred. Sadeep, do you expect uh, uh, that it's possible that we could have, as as has been bandied about the last, you know, 36 hours, and as I talked about with Wendy Edelberg yesterday, forget the soft landing, man. We could just have a zero landing. We're just, no landing at all. We're just going to keep going up. The no landing, the, the continue st- right, steady right. as she goes. Right. It, it's it's certainly possible. We've gone through a, a, probably a year ago, economists were calling it the rolling recession. We mm-hmm. went from uh, a lot of damage two years ago in the tech sector to the housing sector, uh, manufacturing actually in a recession, contracting uh, for a while. But the top line stuff has not been hit. Uh, the job growth has been sturdy. The unemployment rate is low. GDP growth, uh, as you just mentioned, and we've seen on inflation uh, the parabola affected. Right. It went all the way up, and it's come uh, right back down. Uh, it hasn't come all the way down, and so that's the risk we've seen uh, before. Uh, early victories in the 1970s. You don't want to declare victory too early because then it goes right back up afterwards. So that's that's the thing that's that's on the minds of Jay Powell and everyone else right now is how do you make sure you you continue that uh, that 
downward slope and keep it going down and and not uh, not run into the same problem that their predecessors faced. Yeah, but look, Anna, I mean, you know, stipulating that the Federal Reserve is traumatized by uh, the 1970s and early 1980s, which, you know, they, they freely admit when you ask them about it. There are zero signs the consumer in this economy has given up. In fact, sentiment is 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 uh, improving almost monthly. Um, GDP growth, as you pointed out, 3.1% last year when everybody was like, oh, no, forget it. Um, uh, what what will it take for the Federal Reserve to to not take counsel of its fears? Well, I think that they are definitely going to be, um, you know, cautious. This this stronger growth this week is mm-hmm. going to make them a little more cautious about shifting mm. toward rate cuts. They're going to be, you know, very careful in making that assessment of when they've done enough and they can ease up. Um, but, you know, I think that that um, tipping point is clearly approaching where they need to, um, you know, sh- to to shift. And they're weighing, you know, the, the balance between the risk of overdoing it and the risk of underdoing it, um, you know, but but it seems like we're kind of gradually shifting to an environment where those rate cuts are more likely than rate rate hikes. It's just a question of when, um, you know, mm-hmm. and I think we'll we'll figure out that more as we get toward the the middle of this year, probably. Sudeep, this is going to get a little bit weedy, but but roll with me here, right? One of the things that some members of the Federal Reserve have said, regional presidents and/or members of the Board of Governors, is um, the worst thing we could do is cut rates and then have to raise rates again. And I guess my question is, why would that be so bad? If things are going well, you cut rates, and when they start not going well, you raise rates. It it, it all depends on the circumstances. You don't want to get into a situation where, where you lose credibility as a central bank, that they're, they're, they realize their, their mandate tilts toward fixing the inflation problem right now. You don't want to, uh, because again, of the experience of the 70s and 80s, mm-hmm. you don't want to relive that. People will usually excuse policymakers from making a new mistake. They won't ex- excuse them for making the old mistake again. And that's the mm-hmm. thing that they want to be careful about uh, in, in facing all of this. And um, we they also recognize, though, that that there is, as we've discussed many times on the show, long and variable lags yep. uh, to monetary policy. We don't know how long they are, but you don't need to wait until the recession to start lowering lowering interest rates. Uh, you don't need to even expect that there's going to be a recession. There is a natural rate that you can bring it down to. It doesn't need to be the sky high rates we've been suffering through for the last year, year and a half. Anna, as you look uh, not just at the American economy, but the global economy, what are the signs? What's in your tickler file of things to keep an eye out for for possible bad news? Yeah, well, I mean, there's there's certainly plenty of bad news if you look around the world. I mean, compared to the, you know, the U.S. is really in a bright spot comparatively. It's much stronger than other developed economies now. Um, Looking around the world, um, earlier this month, the World Bank was warning of um, the weakest half decade of growth Mm -hmm. in 30 years. Um, You have two wars, of course, um, going on uh, and conflicts in the Middle East, uh, especially could lead to more economic disruption, potentially for fuel markets. Um, You have, of course, the attacks on ships in the Red Sea that are affecting global shipping and auto producers. Um, A decision this week about uh, liquefied natural gas exports. I could go on and on. Uh, (laughs) Chinese economy is kind of sluggish. So, you know, I think we should be really thankful to um, to be where we are. Um, You know, the rest of the world is is struggling with the same issues with inflation without 
um, you know, the the same issue of of such strong yeah. growth. That that is a reporter who knows her beat, ladies and gentlemen. Um, Sudeep, <laughs> one one last question to you. Uh, Janet Yellen gave a speech yesterday at the Economic Club of Chicago, in which she, on behalf of the president, uh, took credit for uh, the good news in this economy. The president himself took a credit on behalf of himself uh, for the good news in this economy yesterday afternoon. My question is, how much credit does the White House actually deserve? <laughs> Victory laps everywhere. Yeah, um, right? the, it, it's an election year. You'd be foolish not to take credit for <laughs> holding up when just about every forecaster uh, was wrong here. And usually uh, economists are not as bearish as they were a year ago, and they were wrong uh, across yeah. the board, yeah. uh, so many of them. And so uh, Biden ha- has a, an opportunity here to say, everyone has been doubting me and here we are. And that's a message that can sell over the course of the year if things hold uh, where they are. If the, the election were held today, he'd be in a good p- place. Uh, but uh, he's got to hold this for nine months. And that's mm-hmm. really the test uh, for 2024. Nine months and change till Election Day. Sadiq Reddy at Politico, Anna Swanson at The New York Times on a Friday afternoon. Thanks, you too. Thanks, Thanks Kai. Kai. Have a nice weekend. Wall Street today kind of mixed, actually. Barely, though. Not a whole lot of movement up or down. Details and numbers, you all know the drill. The economic news as we kick off 2024, as Sadiq Anana and I were just talking about, has been sunnier than in the recent past. The news out of corporate America, though, has not matched. Microsoft, eBay, and Salesforce over the past couple of days have all joined the list of companies making layoff announcements. What gives, given the vibe expansion? Marketplace's Kristen Schwab has some perspective here on how big these layoffs actually are and what they might portend. Churn in the labor market is expected, even necessary. And Daniel Kyum, a management professor at Columbia, says an important piece of that churn has stalled. People are just not quitting their jobs. <laughs> so to get back to that natural rate of turnover, companies are resorting to layoffs more than they have in the past. The quits rate has declined over the past year. The last job openings and labor turnover survey put it at just over 2%. While workers stay in place... Companies are trying to innovate. So they're experimenting very actively, and that experimentation entails hiring and firing. Experimentation usually kicks off at the beginning of the year, says Leila O'Kane, an economist at Lightcast, a labor market analytics firm. Because people are reviewing their budgets, trying to do some planning for the year ahead, understanding what their main goals and perspectives on the company are going to be for that year. New year, new priorities, especially in tech, where recent layoffs are concentrated. Angelo Zeno, an equity analyst at CFRA Research, says the industry is focused on generative AI development, which is expensive. One way for some of these tech companies to really kind of pay for um, some of these gen AI investments is to cut down in headcount. Not so long ago, tech companies could throw spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks. Now, growth has slowed, so companies have to be choosy about their projects. So in order to continue the level investments that they want to, it does require better streamlining in many instances. 
He says while recent layoffs aren't a fixture of the greater economy right now, they could become more consistent in tech. I'm Kristen Schwab for Marketplace. Access to affordable and reliable internet, high speed please, not dial-up, is nothing less than a requirement in this day and age. Everything from applying for a job to getting medicine can require an internet connection. There are, though, a lot of places in this country, specifically for us right now in the rural south, where internet, when available, is neither affordable, reliable, or high speed. It's a digital divide that affects black Americans disproportionately. A study from the Joint Center for Political and Economic Studies showed 38% of black households in that part of the country don't have home internet. Aaliyah Wright is a reporter for Capital B News, and she's been working on a series called Digital Redlining and the Black Rural South. Aaliyah, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. So the headline of the piece, as I said in the introduction, Digital Redlining and the Black Rural South. How bad is it? Yeah, so I'll start by just saying I thought about my experience when I lived in Mississippi, which Mm. is my home state, and I had issues finding an internet provider Mm. where I lived. Mm. And when I did find a provider, first of all, it took multiple attempts to find someone who serviced my area. Um, When I did, the service was so slow that I had to basically work out of the local coffee shop that was in the downtown area of where I lived. And so given that, I wanted to see what it looked like for other places, you know, in terms of accessibility as well as affordability. Mm -hmm. And so I got a chance to travel to Alabama Mississippi and Georgia, just to see how, you know, these issues um, were affecting folks. Yeah. As you mentioned, there are two things, accessibility and cost. Let's talk, first of all, about the cost. It can be had with some difficulty and it's expensive as all get out. Yeah. Many folks who, you know, live in these areas um, are low income and they can't afford to subscribe to an internet service as well as, you know, paying the bills, uh, prescription, you know, necessities, uh, you know, they're stretched thin. So when it comes to choosing essentials versus internet, they just simply can't do it. And even though some folks may, you know, have the service, usually um, the service isn't always Mm -hmm. great. Mm -hmm. And a number of folks have mentioned that their service resembles modern day dial-up, if you will. Yeah. Um, You know, it's interesting. You you talk about picking between essentials and the internet. And while obviously the internet is not food and shelter, in today's modern economy, broadband internet is kind of an essential. This affects people's work, their ability to go to school, all of those things that you you lay out in this piece. Yeah, very much so. Um, You can't do most things, you Mm -hmm. know, without the internet. Just think about, as you mentioned, wanting to do remote work. We know jobs are limited and few in these areas, so it would be great for folks to be able to take on um, a remote job and make more money. 
um, or paying a bill online, submitting schoolwork, applying for government programs and assistance. And so for folks who may not have great quality service or service at all, they have to find alternatives, Mm -hmm. whether it's driving or walking to a local library or a hotel lobby or simply going to their neighbor's home. When you were on your search for your own internet in Mississippi and were having to deal with, you know, going to the library and and whatever, did you just look around and say, how the heck did this happen? Mm. I think at that time I was just trying to get the internet (laughs) wherever I could. Um, But it it always was in the back of my mind. I mean, even growing up, because I'm from Clarksdale, Mississippi, and even growing up living with- which, Which for those who aren't familiar, how rural is that part of Mississippi? So that part, it's about what, 15,000 folks. Okay. And it's in the heart of the Mississippi Delta, which is the poorest part of, you know, the state and also one of the poorest areas in the country. Um, And we also are known for our blues tourism. So I should definitely put that out there. But But even living with my mom, she had what they would deem as quality internet service. And she paid hundreds of dollars, Hmm. uh, maybe up to 200 for it. But the internet was still so slow. And so it was always in the back of my mind and thinking, why does this issue exist? But when I finally, you know, got the chance to uh, delve into it and and spend months reporting this out, I knew I had the chance to finally figure out why. Aaliyah Wright is the rural issues reporter at Capital B. They're doing a whole series of which this is the first one. Uh, The series is called Disconnected Rural Black America and the Digital Divide. Aaliyah, thanks a lot. I appreciate your time and your reporting. Thanks so much for having me. Coming up. They have done weeks of research for me. Every little bit helps, you know. First, though, let's do the numbers. Dow Industrials ticked up 60 points, six zero points, two-tenths percent on the blue chips, finished at 38,109. The Nasdaq down 55 points, four-tenths percent, 15,455. The S&P 500, we'll call that flat, 48 and 90. For the five days gone by, the Dow added seven-tenths percent. The Nasdaq gained nine-tenths percent. The S&P 500 went up just more than one percent. Colgate Palmolive, maker of a number of toiletries and household goods from Colgate to Fabuloso, which I don't know what it is, reported earnings today. Shares jumped just under 2%. Competitor Unilever, which owns the Pepsodent and 7th Generation brands, advanced 1 and 6 tenths percent today. Bond prices fell. Yield on the 10-year Treasury note rose 4.14% on the 10-year you're listening to Marketplace. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. 
Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash marketplace, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash marketplace now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash marketplace. This Marketplace podcast is supported by Gusto. Look, payday's awesome, but running payroll, calculating taxes and deductions, staying compliant, that's not easy. Unless, of course, you have Gusto. Gusto is a simple online payroll and benefits tool built for small businesses like yours. Gusto gets your team paid while automatically filing your payroll taxes. Plus, you can offer benefits like 401k, health insurance, and workers' comp. Just for listening today, you also get three months free. Go to gusto.com slash marketplace. That's gusto.com slash marketplace. This is Marketplace. I'm Kai Rizdahl. This morning, the Biden administration, as you have surely heard, said it is temporarily not going to decide whether to let new liquid natural gas export plants be built. It's effectively a pause while it reviews LNG's climate impact. The United States is already the world's biggest LNG exporter, capacity that is expected to double over the next couple of years. So Marketplace's Kimberly Adams has more on what this pause might mean for the domestic and the global energy economy. There's already a process in place for vetting LNG exports. The Biden administration is explicitly saying that process needs to take into account climate change and energy costs. Samantha Dart is head of global natural gas research at Goldman Sachs. So the implication is that this approval process is at the very least become lengthier and at worst may not lead to more approvals going forward. Dart says in the short term, this won't have much of an impact because projects scheduled to come online in the next few years won't be affected. But longer term. This is especially important for countries like Germany and for Europe more broadly. Benjamin Salisbury is Senior Energy Policy Analyst at Height Capital Markets. There's a movement and impetus to wean themselves completely off cheap Russian natural gas, and they need to plan for years and decades ahead for alternate sources. Domestically, this is also a play for energy security, says Ademiju Allen at Rystad Energy, and a nod to politics. The administration ran on a very green initiative, and so... Uh, It's important heading into an election to try to make sure that you actually come true on the initiatives that you ran on. Even if the policy outcomes won't kick in until long after Election Day. In Washington, I'm Kimberly Adams for Marketplace. This is going to sound um, repetitive in a way, but work with me here, will you? The thing about social media influencers is that they influence, and not just customers either. What customers are influenced to buy, retailers are thus influenced to stock and sell, and nowhere are those influencers more influential than in the highly competitive industry of women's fashion. 
There, mid- and plus-size influencers play a key role in steering those retail dollars, showing potential customers how clothes fit on diverse body types. Marketplace's Elizabeth Troval has this one on the rise of curvy influencers. Search Instagram and TikTok for the hashtags midsize, plus size, or curvy, and you'll find a virtually endless number of videos of women showing off their outfits. In this one, influencer Rayanne Langus starts with a photo of a thin model in a vest and jeans. I had this photo saved on my Pinterest. Oh, and I just think it is the cutest little going out look. Let's make Pinterest curvy, shall we? Langus recreates the look on her curvy body. She pulls a pair of Levi's over her thighs. The way these fall on your body is insane. Sometimes creators post videos of themselves getting dressed under the hashtag GRWM or Get ready with me to go to the club. Get ready with me, version talla 40. Get ready with me as I talk about dating as a mid-sized girly. Influencers have hundreds to millions of followers. They represent different sizes, styles, body types, skin colors, cultural backgrounds, and wear clothes that range in price and quality. What people are really looking for from an influencer is their ability to curate as e-commerce continues to grow. Claire Tassin is a retail analyst. The product proliferation, it becomes so overwhelming that if someone can tell me, hey, buy these jeans and I'm following an influencer who has a similar body type to mine, they have done weeks of research for me. Influencers earn money publishing on behalf of brands. They can also profit from posting links to clothes in their videos. It's a growing business, says Emily Hund, author of The Influencer Industry, The Quest for Authenticity on Social Media. She says these videos feature a relatable, stripped-down vibe. The fact that they are taking you into, you know, their bedrooms or their closets and essentially letting you watch them get changed (laughs) really cultivates this sense of, you know, authenticity. A far cry from the photoshopped size zero models in glossy magazines. The influencer space has kind of helped push the fashion rules to be rewritten a little bit. The success of of influencers and content creators has definitely pushed brands to be, you know, more size inclusive, more diverse in their model casting. One of the influencers rewriting those fashion rules is Rayanne Langus. She got into the industry after following several fashion bloggers in the 2010s. I would look at all these girls and I loved their style, but I was like, I have no idea if I bought that dress, what it would look like on my body. Now, Langus, a size 12 to 14, posts regularly to her Instagram and TikTok, which have hundreds of thousands of followers. She wouldn't say exactly how much she makes, but it is her full-time job, and she hopes it's doing some good. Clothing can be a huge factor in learning to love your body. Studies show positive psychological effects of seeing plus-size models and negative effects of seeing uber-thin ones. But Langus isn't convinced that the fashion world has broadly embraced body diversity. I think that a lot of brands, sadly, don't care as much anymore for size inclusion. And I want to like acknowledge that there are women who are in bigger bodies who still cannot find things or it's very difficult to shop. The average American woman wears a 16 to 18, larger than what many fashion brands carry. But there are also more spaces for consumers and influencers to point this out. 
Latoya Shambo is CEO of Black Girl Digital, which connects brands with influencers who have to decide whether a brand is just talking the talk. If I go to your website, am I going to see a variety of shapes? Like that's a huge part. Like there are brands that we don't work with, we've turned them because you're not you're not consistent. It's not real. It has to be authentic because creators and consumers do notice if a brand is just paying lip service. I'm Elizabeth Troval for Marketplace. This final note on the way out today, say what you will about the leadership at General Motors, but they can read the room. The Detroit Lions are in the NFC Championship game Sunday night for the first time in something like 30 years. So GM is going to push the start time of the third shift at its Flint assembly plant, whence this Chevy Silverado comes, for an hour so people can watch the game. The Detroit Free Press had the story. Ford had no comment on what it's going to do. Stellantis said they are going to run a normal production schedule. We always run a normal production schedule around here. Our theme music was composed by B.J. Lederman. Marketplace's executive producer is Nancy Fargali. Donna Tam is the executive editor. Neil Scarborough is the vice president and general manager. I'm Kai Rizal. Have yourselves a great weekend, everybody. We will see you again on Monday, all right? This is APM. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I was spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.